Welcome back to the Queer Q. I'm Nick, and I'm joined here today by the incomparable Jenny Olson, who I lovingly like to refer to as the queer patron saint of San Francisco. Uh, Jenny, first, I just wanted to thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Um, and uh, that's a lovely uh, epithet. <laughs> Well, you, I would have to say you're probably one of the most prominent and prolific uh, queer filmmakers and historians in San Francisco, and definitely the most prominent queer historian in San, in San Francisco. Well, there are, I would I would beg to differ that there are many colleagues who are much more uh, uh, whatever experienced and amazing. Um, uh, but but I but I'll I'll take the I'll take the compliment. It's funny though that you say the saint thing because I it's about to be Harvey Milk's birthday and there was a whole thing years ago where they you know they did a whole kind of Saint Harvey thing which was particularly amusing because of course he was Jewish. Um, but I, uh, I I had I'll just jump right in here. I I had the honor to. Um, make a film in 2009 called 575 Castro Street, where I got to shoot on the set of Gus Van Sant's film Milk and used the, um, the audio recording that Harvey had made to be played in the event of his assassination, um, which is quite moving and still, I mean, completely devastating to listen to uh, and which I, I had gotten to help with the kind of preservation of it, the, the digitizing of it. And uh, anyway, and so I used it as this, the kind of audio for this short film about, uh, about well, it was made to be released when um, Milk came out. And, and it's a very simple kind of documentation of, of Harvey. Yeah, you know, that would have been such a huge honor to be a part of that, to be on set and to see Harvey Milk's life commemorated that way with that biopic and being able to create that short, you know, Harvey Milk is a pillar, you know, of San Francisco, always has and always will be, just like you, you know, I'd love to hear what San Francisco means to you in your own words, what is it about this, this queer haven that you love to document so much of? I mean, obviously San Francisco, you know, historically has been a, a queer Mecca um, and a, a place where people, you know, felt that they knew they could come to feel safe and um, find community. And um, I moved to San Francisco in 1991, the end of 1991 to be, uh, to work for Frameline, which is the organization which runs the LGBT film festival. And so I was co-director of that festival in the early nineties for a couple of years. Um, and um, uh, what to say about San Francisco, um, but, I mean, it's just an endlessly fascinating place. And I, I so I, I ran the, the festival for many years and then, um, and then decided I wasn't a filmmaker at that time. I mean, I started making little short videos and then just kind of fell in love with the, the city and its, and its landscapes. And I mean, things that are not 
queer per se, but are about the qualities of the light and the, the actual topography and landscape of the city and, um, and started making, um, I make these 16 millimeter uh, essay films um, that consist entirely of the urban landscapes of the city and voiceover of me blabbing away. Um, and uh, anyway, and so I've become, I became very, you know, over, kind of over identified with the city. And it's, it's funny because two years ago, I actually moved to Berkeley mm. and I now live in Berkeley, California, which is across the Bay Bridge. And, um, but <laughs> when I said I was moving, there were people who were like, you can't leave San Francisco. You're like so identified with San Francisco. Um, but I'm very happy to be in Berkeley, but of course I still am very identified with with the city yeah you're not too far away from san francisco not in just, Berkeley. No. just over the bridge yeah <laughs> um so what was it like you know did you move to san francisco in the 90s to lead up frameline like what was that experience like because i know that would have been really the beginnings of uh queer cinema and i'm sure that was hugely inspiring to be you know at the forefront of that yeah, a significant time in terms of particularly, um, you know, independently made um, LGBT film and uh, this kind of sense of, um, I mean, Frameline, the, the San Francisco LGBT Film Festival started in 1977 and is considered the oldest and largest of the gay film festivals. And, um, you know, gradually over the years, there came to be you know, other festivals and particularly in big cities, New York, LA, um, London, so on. Um, and, you know, and now there's like, I don't know, a couple hundred, if not, you know, at least 200, if not 300. <laughs> um, and, um, but in the early nineties, you know, I don't know, maybe there were 50, 60, you know, that it was, and you're starting to have this sense of this kind of ecosystem of film festivals and kind of uh, infrastructure around, you know, queer filmmakers and queer distributors and queer, you know, um, whatever that kind of sense of, um, you know, people who were facilitating everything. And it was very exciting to be part of that and, and that you know, has been my career kind of, I mean, I, I went after a frameline, I went to um, be the, one of the co-founders of planetout.com, which was the kind of first big gay website in 1995. Um, and the main thing I did there was around um, streaming exhibition. And um, uh, I had a big, thing called Popcorn Q that was kind of a gay IMDB, you know, just a huge database of LGBT films and our streaming, it's such a crazy thing to remember. Our streaming, we had little shorts that were in little tiny, you know, window that was this big and it looked like, you know, silent film, like it was so choppy and people were on, you know, dial up connections and 
it was very rudimentary, of course, long before, you know, YouTube or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but in terms of this kind of, you know, sense of uh, infrastructure and, I don't know, it's not quite the right concept, but, um, but, you know, just, I've always felt like it's my uh, thing to like um, connect films and filmmakers with their audiences, you know, and, and so, you know, within whatever way, you know, whether that's programming a film festival or facilitating technologically access to, to, um, to films or um, working. So the, I, after that, I worked for Wolf Video for 11 years, also doing kind of a lot of streaming. Um, I started wolfondemand.com, which is the first kind of global LGBT movie streaming platform. Um, and anyway. Um, and then you were yeah. able to take that concept from 95 and turn it into something flourishing with Wolf Video on demand now. And when you were talking about that, I really had no clue about a lot of how our queer films were displayed back in the 90s. It reminds me of, you know, going back to, you know, early in the 20th century and the late 19th century, just thinking about how people would just use like these devices to be able to, you know, watch just spinning pictures and things like that. And, you know, that's exactly what it reminds me of. And I can tell that, curating and being able to have a home for these queer films, this queer art is something that is just throughout your entire career in filmography. And then you get into actually creating films. You know, you were talking about 575 Castro Street and you've created films like Blue Diary. And I really wanna know when you got into actually creating these personal essays, these films, you know, what is your process like when finding a subject and approaching subjects? Um, well, I mean, to back to the topic of, of San Francisco, I, I mean, I always have felt like San Francisco really is my kind of muse, the, the landscape itself. And, and that I, um, when I moved there, I, I don't know, it's funny, I just had this, uh, thing that would happen as I was walking around where I would say to myself, I was just, you, you just, because of the way that the city is, like there's hills, like you'll be like on a hill and you come to the top of a hill and you look down and you're like, whoa, um, what that? And I would just constantly be saying to myself, what an incredible shot. Like, this is this great shot. I mean, I just have always been a film person. And so I think I look at the world like everything, like it's just a shot. <laughs> and, um, but I found myself anyway, thinking like, well, uh, I could shoot it because <laughs> it's a shot. And then I wasn't really clear, like, and then I thought like, well, and then what would I do? And um, I was influenced by a few different um, experimental filmmakers, but in particular, um, there's a, gay filmmaker, William E. Jones. Um, he made a film in 1991 called Massillon, 
um, which was about growing up gay in Massillon, Ohio, and is consists entirely of 16 millimeter landscape shots of Massillon, Ohio, <laughs> and him talking about growing up gay. And, um, and it, it was uh, kind of revolutionary for a film for me that I saw that film and I thought, I wanna make a film like that, that is just landscape footage and me talking. Um, and anyway, and so, yeah. And then I just, you know, wrote voiceover to, and my, my first short was Blue Diary, which is uh, landscapes of San Francisco and me, well, I got friends to do my voiceover initially and then finally started doing my own. But um, my main, I, I always say my main um, thing is Butch Dyke pining over unavailable women and like whatever other topic. And um, so my first feature length film is called The Joy of Life. And that is Butch Dyke pining over unavailable women and the history of um, suicide and the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and then, um, which, you know, is, it's a, you know, unconventional documentary, but it genuinely does look at that whole history, but in an unconventional way in that it's all just 16 millimeter shots of the, the bridge and me kind of, well, or my friend Harry talking about um, the history. Um, and I had my friend Mark Finch, who I had was my co-director of the, of the San Francisco LGBT film festival, he had um, um, committed suicide in 1995. And that was kind of my uh, inspiration, if you will, or, you know, way of pro one way of processing the grief of that, which of course still feels very hard to believe. Um, but, um, um, Anyway, um, and then my 2015 film, The Royal Road is Butch Dyke pining over unavailable women and the history of the Spanish colonization of California. <laughs> um, and so um, I like these kind of arcane, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, history that is, connected to the landscape, mm -hmm. um, you know, but also that has some kind of actual contemporary social justice relevance um, that is not necessarily gay, uh, and in fact is not gay. Um, and, um, you know, and is is a yeah is about looking at history and and so you know and the history of in historical injustice that is you know relevant right now and um so the joy of life ended up being this kind of unintentional social justice film like i hadn't been thinking when i was making it that it was gonna be have some kind of impact but then it turned out that i when it when I released it in 2005, I wrote an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle 
And then it coincided with another film that was focused on the same topic and we were both working on the same thing and it, it kind of kicked off a new round of uh, calls for a suicide barrier to be erected and was part of a, a movement that, that turned out to, it's in the process of being built right now, a suicide barrier on the, on the bridge. Um, and um, which is, you know, is very, you know, it's a good feeling to feel like you're, that film can make a difference. Um, and, um, and similarly, oddly, The Royal Road, it, it looks at the Spanish colonization of California and particularly um, uh, Junipero Serra, who was the missionary who founded the missions and all the horrible politics of that. Of, <laughs> and um, anyway, that ended up being also a kind of uh, relevant or whatever kind of reignited some of that discussion when it came out. Um, and uh, anyway. Yeah, I think that's what I loved so much about, you know, the Royal Road and the joy of life is that it's like inserting queerness in, you know, the history of, you know, first San Francisco and then California at large, and then looking at, you know, placing ourselves within that history. And I think what's great is because even though, especially with the Royal Road, that, you know, this is something that occurred, you know, decades ago, like over a century ago. And, um, you know, what's so important about being able to juxtapose that with, you know, queer pining, queer life, queer identity, is it really helps bring it to the forefront, you know, brings it into our lives today to really force us to examine our place in history and what we can do. And I, I just love that about that, especially because with the joy of life, um, although it's horrible that a suicide um, barrier will be necessary, but, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge and all of its majesty and all of its iconic status, you know, it's still this place where, you know, people, queer people, you know, in their lives. And I think that what can come out of it, what's being created is exactly what the purpose of these films are, is to create change, to say, this is who we are and this is what we can do to make things better. And that's what I got personally from those mm -hmm. films. And I really enjoy the way that you were able to juxtapose that, that I don't think any other filmmaker I've seen, you know, particularly being able to articulate that in a very cinematically pleasing way. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think, you know, as I'm obviously describing, you know, as these being these landscapes and voiceover that the, you know, part of the point of my work is that it is very unconventional and intentionally um, uh, I, I want to say challenging and yet I think like it's so I don't know to me it's as experimental film goes it's very friendly it's very accessible and I, I think that I feel very warmly towards the viewer and that um, and I, mainly my audiences seem to 
be responsive to that or you know feel um feel like i'm saying things that uh haven't been said or that that they can connect with and i mean that said there are also audiences who don't get my work and are find it totally boring and are like what i don't get it like this is this like three minute shot of like an empty alley like what's what is that <laughs> and um and you know and i mean we all grow up in this culture of we're used to seeing you know conventional movies and things blowing up and dialogue and you know, action and drama. And um, so it's, you know, it's an unusual thing. And, and um, but I think, you know, for, for me, obviously that's a huge part of the pleasure of it is to say there are different ways of, there are different ways of telling stories and that the, the so much of the pleasure. And there's a, a thing about it that like at its most fundamental level, um, I have kids and I remember like when they were little reading to them and the feeling of what that's like and and the feeling of remembering being read to as a child and that um, I have this, yeah, like sense of my audience that it's like, I'm reading to you. I'm, you know, and you're kind of, you're held close in the, the frame and I, I think that I'm trying to put you, you know, put the viewer into a, a kind of vulnerable state of, of being spoken to, you know, in a way that is, um, has an emotional resonance to it that is unique um, and that, that takes advantage of some unique aspects, unique capacities of cinema. Um, to put us into a, yeah, to put us into a state. And I, I think, I mean, you know, regular movies do that in their own way, you know, that we're like, we're just absorbed in this story and it's so powerful to to have that happen. And um, and my, you know, my work works on a different, a different level, but, um, but yeah, similarly is like, okay, I got you here and like, I'm gonna, take you on this journey and um and you know i mean i'm describing my whole you know the kind of whatever my random choices of obscure history to talk about and um but the queer aspect you know is is so important to me and particularly kind of speaking from a butch perspective and you know in some ways in a literal direct way and in other ways just it's I mean in other ways it's just like I don't know this is just me and so these are the things I'm interested in and um but I do find that you know particularly other butch dykes connect with what I'm saying in in very deep ways um but butches and the people who love us <laughs> Um, connect in very deep ways. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the most important thing to me. So. Well, see, it's great that the work resonates so deeply. And I know it, it does to me because uh, one thing is, is that there's so much that can be taken from 
you know, what you've created. And that's the beauty of unconventional filmmaking. I, we need more unconventional films because there are so many different ways that they can affect us that, you know, the filmmaker doesn't intend. I think it's incredible to be able to create something like that and, you know, provide that to the world. I think it's, it's our duty. And I really think that the love and the warmth that you speak of, it comes across because you have so much love for your subjects and the passions that you convey on the camera. And I think that that transcends, you know, your career because, you know, you've done so much work programming and cataloging and collecting, archiving all of, you know, our, our art, our history, our, you know, our queer history. And, you know, it makes me really curious, you know, what your experience has been like getting queer content out there. You know, it's like being an archivist yourself and creating the streaming service. What has the process been like really getting queer content to be accessible? Um. Well, I just have to, <laughs> I just have to like say something that like you just use the word content and, and like, it's just this pet peeve of mine that I can't stand that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, whatever I, I use it at times as well. <laughs> and, um, but there's something about it that is so, um, Anyway, I mean, partly, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a commodifying term, it, but, yeah. and that, um, you know, reduces things to, you reduces know, the art. it reduces it and that, yeah. And, and so I, I, I try to, <laughs> I try to avoid it when I can. I, I understand, um, but, I agree. But, <laughs> but, yeah, so, uh, but, so yeah, queer, queer films, queer, queer, queer art, queer, you know, podcasts, queer writing, queer, yeah. Um, well, a couple things. I mean, I've worked in my career in, you know, in so many ways trying to help filmmakers to get their work out there. Um, and, you know, to, you know, through technological means to wider audiences, but also to, you know, through less or you know more old school means like showing movies in movie theaters and you know I mean obviously it's been a very interesting time this last year or so and um and you know change the changes and obviously the great blessings of technology um uh in terms of accessing our uh movies that we need um um and what was i gonna say um i lost my train of thought um yeah but well but i will say that um well oh just something about it being you know the, the to a certain degree you know it, there is a business involved and there is an economy, I guess I should say, there's an economy, you know, and, and some of that is a, a real reality of, for instance, it costs money to make movies and it costs money to, for filmmakers to, you know, eat, <laughs> um, things like that. And, um, 
you know, it's not a great landscape <laughs> in, in, in these regards. And I mean, personally, you know, I have my whole career has been a combination of working. I've been incredibly blessed to have jobs that are in the ballpark of queer film or queerness or and that are paying jobs. And then, you know, here I am making work that, you know, for the most part is not making any money and is actually on the contrary losing money and um, whatever, it's a, it's a juggling act. Um, and, um, but one that I feel very blessed to have been able to successfully juggle <laughs> and, yeah. you know, while also, you know, helping others <laughs> do their juggling to continue that metaphor. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. And, and just, you know, that I am always in my own work. I'm not, I know that the work that I'm making is not gonna make a million dollars. <laughs> like, and I'm not interested in making conventional work. And, yeah. um, uh, and that is just, you know, in some ways I'm like, oh, you know, I'm cursed. Like that's what I had decided is important. Like, oh, well. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I feel like that is really the consensus for a lot of queer creators is that, you know, we have to juggle so much to be able to support ourselves and create the films, you know, the, the TV series, short form series, everything, all, all of the art out there that we want to make. We don't, we don't look for this type of art on a platform like Netflix, you know, or, or Amazon, you know, we're looking at the queer streaming services that, you know, really value the type of queer art that is for our community, you know, looking at Wolf as well as Reverie and Hello, you know, all of these great um, streaming and production companies. And, you know, I think it, it brings it back to, you know, the queer brick and mortar spaces, like our, our physical spaces, like bars and places where we could have, you know, honest and authentic conversations, you know, it's like, this is us, you know, going back and trying to stay outside of this type of, you know, productive capitalistic society and really make sure that, you know, the, the attention, the money that is involved stays within, you know, the queer, the queer artist and the people within the queer community. Do you think that is somewhere where we should be moving towards in the future? You know, is that kind of what you're, what you're hoping for to see in the future? I mean, I do think that, you know, it's, there are a bunch of um, LGBT, uh, you know, distributors and streamers and companies that have, um, you know, been there and invested in this, you know, doing the, doing the work and com companies like Wolf and Strand and, TLA and um, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, but um, uh, you know, who, and there is, yeah, it does feel like they should be um, whatever, we should patronize them and support them. And, you know, they've been there for us, we should be there for them kind of thing. Or, um, 
and um, that that's uh, and that that's one of the ways that we will you know see films be released uh, and that that we need to see because there's you know with with so many independent LGBT films it's not like there's a ton of money to be made and um, you know certain companies I mean when I was at Wolf there were certain films that we would release that were like yeah this is not gonna make very much money in fact we would be lucky if it even breaks even and um you know but like we're gonna do this one because it's an important film and I, you know kathy wolf who is the founder of wolf video you know believed that it was important and like that was the reason which was like wow well that's a great way to do business um and and actually <laughs> My film, The Royal Road, was a beneficiary of that, and it's they they did the DVD release in 2015, and it still hasn't made the money back that it cost them to release it. Um, so I'm a personal beneficiary <laughs> of that. Um, so uh, you know, but I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing, right? That a company is doing something because it's important. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's the point. I hope hopefully we'll see a larger resurgence of people putting in the money to be able to create these films, even without the safety net of receiving that money back. You know, that's what's important. I think the other thing I wanted to say was um, um, about LGBT film festivals and like. Um, it's funny, I get a little choked up sometimes about things and this is a little surprising, but um, I, um, <laughs> I take your time. Queer film festivals are so important. Yeah. And um, I, I, I mean, you know, they have been there for us in this, last year and and I mean I'm I used to be at Frameline I'm you know a friend of Frameline and a friend of Outfest in LA and New Fest in New York and Inside Out in Toronto whatever all the festivals in different ways but like you know they have struggled and I mean they the, the folks who run those festivals have um you know well obviously we've all struggled <laughs> um but you know it's been amazing to see how they have you know reinvented themselves and found ways to to serve us and be there for us and um uh it's just really important to i don't know for us to show up for them and and um you know i mean obviously in terms of you know being you know, become a member of your local queer film festival, wherever you are. Um, and, you know, I mean, hopefully, and I think why I particularly got teared up is like, hopefully, you know, not too long from now, we will be able to go out and see movies in the context of a festival. And to me, of a queer film festival. And to me, I mean, that's like, is the, the beginning of the very beginning of my career was that I started the LGBT film festival in Minneapolis in 1987. And it was how I came 
out and came into the community and to sit in a room with a bunch of queers seeing a, a queer movie and and like what that meant and social you know talking to people and connecting and experiencing our culture and validation and celebration and and anyway um you know anyway being in the context of a queer film festival is just to me like such heaven and um i'm really looking forward to that me too you know that it, it, it resonates with me too because where our representation, where we really reclaimed our representation in, in queer film and queer art, you know, was film festivals, you know, these spaces that we carved out for ourselves, you know, it's, it's important that we remember that and that we honor that because without those festivals, it would be a lot harder for the legacy of queer film and queer art to, you know, have that space, you know, to be able to be in the culture that we have it in. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that too, you know, being able to be surrounded by people and that, you know, that crucible of people just sharing opinions, you know, being either just outraged over something or just collectively enjoying whatever art is being put out there, you know, that's, that's the place for it. And I think that, you know, even though we're making strides in mainstream Hollywood and, you know, we're, we're finding success and representation with, you know, the Ryan Murphys of Hollywood, but, you know, there's so many queer artists out here who, you know, need a platform that don't benefit from that success. And we have to find and carve our own ways. And one of those are film festivals. So that's, I, it's important for everybody anyone who's queer to be able to support those local film festivals because that's where the queer community is. Yeah, and I think also, you know, in so many ways, um, the, you know, kind of more independent films that are shown at LGBT film festivals um, tend to speak to us in more, um, I don't know, deeper ways uh, and, and, you know, without a sense of like, oh, here's the mainstream kind of it being accessible to the mainstream or, you know, the mainstream looking over our shoulders or, and it, and I mean, I always say about my own work, I mean, I've been incredibly blessed that most of my films have world premiered at Sundance, which is like, you know, just an incredible dream and is so validating and is so, um, is amazing. And it's an it's amazing festival, the movie lovers and um, really great audience experience, you know, and it's a, you know, straight film festival. And, and I always feel like when, then when my work shows at Frameline in particular, you know, at the Castro Theater, I say like, this is why I made this film, like for this literal screening here, you know, in San Francisco at the Queer Film Festival with this audience. And, um, and that it is, you know, really like, I'm talking to you, like you're the, you are the people who are gonna get this in the deepest possible way. And that it's a, um, 
and that that's what it's about and that that's what's possible in the context of a queer film festival. Um, obviously I'm total evangelist. I, there's a, um, a line in um, the celluloid closet, um, Vito Russo's book on the history of homosexuality in film, where he, he basically says, this is not the exact quote, but I always think of it this way. He basically says, don't expect anything from Hollywood, which is to say, you know, you know, I mean, obviously it's great, like the things that have happened in Hollywood and that continue to happen. It's very exciting to see, you know, what I just watched the trailer for the new Dear Evan Hansen musical, which was like, whoa, like, oh my God, so amazing, you know? Um, and, you know, and whatever, it's really powerful and it's so great in all these ways. Um, and, you know, it's speaking on a just totally different level. And, and Vito's point was like, yeah, like we, and I feel like this to me, like the most exciting films to me are like, you know, little low budget video that I see at the film festival. Um, where it feels like it's not concerned with, you know, commercial success or appealing to the mainstream or, you know, or that it's like radical or, you know, <laughs> I always love that saying, um, not queer as in gay, queer as in fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that there's like that, um, yeah, an edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Um, yeah, that's exactly how I see. Like, you know, art art can take on so many different meanings. You know, it can be something to appeal to the masses, or it can be esoteric. And, you know, I I love that with queer art. You know, it people want it to be so many different things. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's really just fuck you to conventionalism, fuck you to, you know, whatever is mainstream and dominating over everything else. And that's that's what we love about queerness. I think that's what really drives us. Um, so another thing that I would love to ask, you know, just especially when it comes to recommending things to, you know, our listeners, the people watching, you know, who were some of the biggest influences in your life as a filmmaker? I know San Francisco is definitely one of them, but I'd love to know what else, who else, um, who are some of the artists that you're obsessed with today? And what advice do you have for young queer filmmakers? One of my, such a great film. There's a film, it actually is on Netflix um, called Strong Island um, by Yancey Ford. Um, who's an African-American trans guy filmmaker who made a documentary about um, the death of his brother. Um, and it's a, it's a film that um, is very uh, formally innovative. Um, it's, it's a documentary, it's a personal documentary, but um, his, his uh, stylistic approach is just incredible. And um, uh, and it's a, a film that it has, I think it is, um, it's, it's a queer film that it, it, it's, uh, 
in that category, but it also transcends that category. Um, and anyway, it's a, just an incredible film. Strong Island on Netflix, watch it. Um, uh, anyway, that was the first thing that I thought of when you were saying, what am I obsessed with? Um, uh, on the lighter end of the spectrum, I'll say like, and I think this is like basically my favorite film of all time is um, Angela Robinson's Debs, um, which is, it's very lighthearted, whimsical, lesbian spoof on kind of teenage, I don't know, movies, spy movies, whatever. I love, I love Debs. Um, and, um, and I love Angela Robinson. And what did I just, there's like some exciting news just recently that she's gonna direct, oh right, she's directing a remake of something, The Hunger. The Hunger, okay, yes. Um, was just announced like two days ago, um, apparently. The Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie movie. Yeah the lesbian vampire yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we'll see. I don't know, the, in Hollywood, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, the, they announced something and then it never happens, but um, hopefully it's actually happening. Um, anyway, I love Angela and her work and um, um, and Debs is, is one of my favorite movies um, and is, I think, available most on multiple platforms. I love that you love Debs. It's probably one of my favorite spy movies. It is like nothing is ever a guilty pleasure because that film is just incredible with, you know, how it subverts the, the genre. So I absolutely love Debs. It's a great movie. And it, hopefully The Hunger does get remade and everybody should watch the original, Catherine Deneuve, and we've got Susan Sarandon, and they're incredible, just completely incredible. Yes, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, let's see, what else? So here's a fun question. So if um, you had all of the funding that you could have, what would be your dream, like pipe dream project to work on it? Um, well, really just, well, I guess, okay, I'll give you two answers to that. One is really just my next 16 millimeter urban landscape essay film, which I am working on, although I, and I am trying to write grants and raise money for it. Um, it's called The Quiet World. Um, and it is actually, there's like a website which is, I guess, quietworldmovie.com. And I have a Facebook page and a Twitter page, Quiet World Movie, that somehow I sort of thought like, okay, I'm gonna pretend that this is actually happening. And if you were making a movie, you would have social media accounts. And I'm like, um, what's that expression? Um, you know, bringing it into uh, manifesting. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, if, you know, a couple more hundred thousand dollars falls from the sky, I would like to make the movie that I 
care about. And um, that is, you know, Butch Dyke pining over unavailable women. And I'm not sure what yet because I haven't written the script. So something. Well, <laughs> um, we, we have that to look forward to that. Yeah. Um, so that's the main thing. I'm, I also, I got to, I, the, one of the other things I do is I work as an archival producer. Um, that's my, a whole nother hat of my, as a film collector and archivist and film historian. Um, so I work as an archival producer and I worked on a, a series for HBO Max last year called Equal. Mm -hmm. That was a four part LGBT history series, not to be confused with the six part LGBT history series that's on right now on FX called FX Pride. Um, but Equal, we did, um, four parts and I got to be also a story consultant on one part, which we worked on this story about Jack Starr, who was a person who passed as a man in the like 30s or 30s and 1930s and 40s. And um, we did like, it was just a tiny segment with um, Theo Germain playing Jack Starr and um, and he was just this fascinating figure who I basically, I kind of discovered his story in through some research that I was doing. And, uh, and I would love to do a story about the, the actual story of Jack Starr and that kind of phenomenon of folks who passed as men, um, I mean, throughout time, but particularly in America in the thirties and forties and, um, there are so many stories like that that are, uh, you know, really incredible stories. And so I would love to make like a movie movie about that. Yeah, make a feature length film about Jack Star. That would be, that would be pretty incredible. Yeah, million dollars, you know. Yeah, just just a little bit, just a little bit, just to make it. Yeah. Well, honestly, um, I'm going to put all of the links that you discussed, all of your socials down in the description for this video. Everybody, please check out Jenny's work. It's incredible and just so happy that you were able to sit down and talk with me. So thank you so much for joining me here on The Queer Keto. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all of your work and all of your other interviews and everything that you're doing. Thank you.